Determined, a Rethinking Marxism podcast. Uh, I am Jared Randall, uh, here with Malia Suffrey. Malia, how are you? Good. Glad to be here. And also with Ryan Watt. Hello. Hi. And this is episode four, uh, which will be a conversation uh, with Anjali Vats. Um, kind of taking off on a special issue uh, in the print version of Rethinking Marxism, uh, Volume 33, Issue 2, uh, the special issue on new economies, class, platform, knowledge. Uh, and so uh, this uh, episode continues that conversation and extends it, uh, interacting with uh, the work of, of Anjali Vats. Yeah, so the conversation uh, listeners are about to hear took play was recorded a little while ago. It features uh, Zoe Sherman, who's a former president of ASA and uh, assistant professor of economics at Merrimack College. Her writing has appeared in Rethinking Marxism, as well as uh, Forum for Social Economics and other uh, publications. Um, Sharam Mazar is a uh, assistant professor at Bucknell University, uh, who's also been recently published in RM article titled Consumption, Capital and Class in uh, Digital Space, the Political Economy of Pay-Per-Click Business Models. And uh, Anjali Vats, who is an associate professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh Law School. Um, she had a book come out in 2020 titled The Color of Creatorship, Intellectual Property, Race and the Making of Americans. I'm pretty excited that we get to uh, have this podcast. I think it really encircles this whole problematic that Anjali Vats calls the second enclosure movement um, and the dynamics of that, uh, the dynamics of enforcing property rights and enclosure of really the digital commons. Um, and then I also think, of course, there's a big chunk of the conversation that is about methodological critique and how methodological critique is often a coded way of gatekeeping, really, in intellectual voices that are anti-capitalist. And hovering over this entire conversation is the idea and the complications of how race property and class are co-constituted and Anjali Vats offers many examples that speak to the global nature of this and particularly the role of the global south in this uh, dynamic. All right, so uh, we hope you'll enjoy. I'm Zoe, um, and I was really excited to read Anjali's The Color of Creatorship because um, I'm a political economist. I'm really interested in how property gets created socially, and there's lots of um, interesting stuff in here. So um, we're going to be talking with Anjali about uh, her work um, over the next hour or so. Anjali, can you introduce yourself? Sure, absolutely. I'm Anjali Vats. I am an associate professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh with a secondary appointment in communication. Um, I, I study race and intellectual property, um, oftentimes from the lens of uh, communication and rhetoric. And we're also joined by Sharam. 
And here's Shahram's voice. Hi, Zoe and Anjali. This is Shahram. Uh, I'm an assistant professor of economics uh, at Bucknell University, and I study the political economy of digital capitalism, and in particular, its inter- intersection with issues of citizenship, class, race, etc. So, really interested in the work that Anjali is doing. Thank you so much for having me. This is exciting. Um, all right, so to start with, uh, people who may have had the uh, the pleasure of reading The Color of Creatorship already, uh, get a, this clearly cr- drawn map that you provide of how your work um, comes from, derives from some earlier literatures and critical legal studies, critical race theory, and, and others. Um, but for those who are meeting you and your work here for the first time, can you give us a sense of what um, what background you were drawing on and what gap in your knowledge you were aiming to fill? Absolutely. So um, just at a big picture level, I, I consider myself to be a critical race theorist. And really everything that I do comes from the sensibility of critical race theory and critical race studies. Um, so I would say that that this is a really deeply interdisciplinary book that draws on critical race studies, um, black studies and ethnic studies specifically. Um, also um, quite a bit of work, like I, like I mentioned before, um, from rhetoric and uh, media studies. Um, so some of the ideas that I draw on um, come from legal scholars like Jessica Silby and Kara Swanson, who write about citizenship as an organizing uh, principle in intellectual property and um, part of the origin story of intellectual property. Um, I also draw on ideas um, that come from ethnic studies and rhetoric. So the idea of racial scripts that Natalia Molina has written about um, and the idea of the prudential characterization that that Maruf Hassan has re- written about. Um, and those come together for me as a lens to think about meta narrative and myth and intellectual property law um, across a really long period of time. Um, I'm going to have to ask you for the whole reading list, I think, <laughs> or, or work through the, the bibliography and keep doing some more of my own reading. Uh, near the beginning of the book, you uh, have this, this sentence in the so-called information economy, intellectual property justice is racial justice. And I was really curious about your phrasing, right? That so-called uh, information economy um, it seems to suggest this really complex engagement, right? The formation that gets labeled information economy has these important features. It has these racial effects, um, and and you argue that there that that these categories, racial categories and inequities, are inscribed and perpetrated through the information economy. But by calling it so called, you seem to indicate some misgivings about that label. Um, so I would be really curious to hear you talk about that idea, that that construction of the information economy. What could be useful about that idea? What's dangerous about it, deploying that idea? Absolutely. Um, so that that idea of information economy, um, I think, is it means different things to different people. And in some ways, I consider myself to be a bit of a, a cultural and rhetorical historian in thinking about these terms and their their emergences. Um, but in this particular case, you know, when we're talking about an information economy, I think um, we're talking about this shift from from a industrial goods based economy to a service based economy. So, what does it mean to live in a moment where a lot of what the United States produces is information, right? And a lot of what um, is transferred is is being transferred digitally. So. Um, that's the starting point for me for thinking about what an information economy is. Um, 
we certainly need a concept to talk about this this transformation and this change. But what I want to problematize here is um, both the term information and the term economy. So what does information mean, right? And that's a central premise of the book. How do you classify knowledge? How do you classify um, who owns that knowledge or who defines that knowledge? Um, and I will get into this, I'm sure, a little bit later. But you know, if we look back at the histories of colonialism, of, of race in America, information is really a, a fraught term. And um, especially if we think about the relationship between information and knowledge, we start to get into some dicey definitional questions that, that I think implicate power um, as well. Um, and then there's also the question of the economy, which um, this is obviously y'all's area of expertise here, but I, I'm sure I can throw a few thoughts in here and there. Um, what is an economy, right? What does it mean to have an economy? Whose economy? Um, who decides the rules of the economy, i.e. what's valuable, how we value it? Um, is it a market economy? Um, do, are there interventions into the market? When do they happen? And so on. So um, this is really, these are really questions that um, force us to think more critically about what it means to circulate information in the world and exchange it for, for capital, right? Like to exchange it for money and um, and how we're going to manage that as as a nation and beyond as a, as a globe. Thanks for that. So, I mean, you, you've already started to trace that there's this connection between what gets defined as information or knowledge and what gets defined as property that can be exchanged for, for money, for capital. Um, and so the, the next thing that I want to think about together here is that it can be tempting to think of property rights as a set of rules that govern the status of things. Um, like if we think about the history of how land has been treated in various times and places, right, we might ask if land is governed by private property rights in a particular time or place. Um, but I think that your analysis by using race as an entry point um, helps us to correct or resist that temptation, right? Property rights govern people and the same things can have a different property status depending on who's engaging with them, right? So it could be the same thing, but if I engage with it or somebody else engages with it, right, we might have different relationships, right? The property status of the thing could change depending on who's engaging with it. Um, so I think that that centering race gives us a different view than an insufficiently race attentive centering of class would give. Um, I think I, it feels to me, and I, I'm struggling with this, so I'm sort of working towards it as as I'm talking um, here, but I think class and property map onto one another differently than do race and property. Um, there are some traditions that just, that define class by property ownership or its lack. Um, and even if if we have a more complex definition of class, there's still that's not just property ownership. There's still... Um, there's still a way in which having or not having property can can uh, change someone's class status. Um, race and property are also clearly co-constructed, but property doesn't re-race people in the same way that I think it can reclass people. Um, so I feel like like I'm I'm sort of struggling with these ideas. But uh, would you would you go down that path? Where would you take that that idea that connection between race, class, and property? So I'll start by saying that I think one of the reasons that you're struggling with it is because this is a really complex relationship. I, I think of class and race and property as co-constructed and also co-constructed over time. 
Um, some of the um, work that I consider to be the most interesting coming out of American studies right now is thinking about these questions, right? So how does class status emerge in the United States? What does it have to do with the color of your skin? Um, when and how is that happening? These are really um, central questions to understanding property um, over a long period of time, but they're not they're not clear, right? And I think sometimes that this conversation gets boiled down to is it race? Is it class? Um, and and as you suggest, it's it's the answer to that is not that simple. So one of the um, best, I think. Um, early pieces that I read about this. Um, let me rephrase that. One of the entrees that I read into this discussion of race and intellectual property um, is from Stephen Best. And he really talks about the historical emergence of intangible property rights as related to fugitive slave laws. Um, and I, I think that's a helpful way of thinking about this because it demonstrates how muddled that race, class, property connection is, right? So in that, in his example, property, class, and race are deeply intertwined, right? So there are people of a certain class exercising property rights in the intangible labor of a different class of people, right? Enslaved persons. Um, and so um, that is um, a good way of starting to think about how there's many threads here. Um, I think critical race studies has a lot to say as well about the overlap between property of class. So some of the class status that people have is literally bestowed on them as a way of carrying out colonialism. If we think about the formation of whiteness, if we think about manifest destiny, um, these are co-created with race. Right? Like we're going to give these people power because they are going to do things that are in the interest of imperialism. We're not going to give these other people 40 acres and a mule because they're not going to do what we want in terms of the colonial project. So there's this, I think, co-construction that's happening there. And of course, Cheryl Harris's classic work, Whiteness is Property, um, does a lot to trace those evolutions over time. So I think that's essential reading uh, on this question. So, Sharam, I think you had a point you wanted to interject here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was uh, really curious um, to hear your views about uh, the idea of, uh, and this is obviously relevant in, in, in global value chains, which are obviously um, dealing with intellectual property everywhere, right, throughout the value chain. And this is something that, you know, I struggle with all the time and I was wondering what you thought about it. Uh, when we think about production at a global stage, Right at a, at, a, at a global scale, um, there's always this question of why the German retailer retains most of the profits, uh, while the Bangladeshi manufacturer receives close to nothing. Right, and 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 their response is that well, it's H and M's uh, intellectual property, you see, and the work being done is just you know manual labor. Uh, so, and it, it kind of connects with this. Uh, idea that you're talking about, right? So I was wondering how you would think about citizenship, which was also something, uh, uh, which is also part of the colonial project, you see, uh, within and between countries, right? Even this thing called a passport is basically just f to keep the peripheral colonized people out of the core, right? <laughs> so what, do you, what do you make of that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, 
Lawyers really want to think about citizenship as a legal category, and I want to think about it more as a rhetorical and cultural category. Um, This um, is a place where I think we can broaden the understanding of citizenship to to reflect ideas of worthiness, of humanness. Um, Ian Haney Lopez has um, a really classic book, White by Law, that talks about how citizenship has developed over time in the United States. Um, and how citizenship becomes this vehicle for bestowing rights on some people and not on others. And so he traces this line of cases um, where you have people of color claiming to be white, right, in order to get property rights. Um, So the example that you give is so fascinating in a global citizenship context, right, because I think it reflects what is a really ingrained hierarchy of uh, Euro-American personhood. Um, I think it's really difficult to talk about citizenship without talking about personhood, because um, even if we look at U.S. um, constitutional history, personhood is such a central part of who gets considered a citizen and who doesn't. Right. When do women get to vote um, when they are considered to be people by enough people? Right. And enough people that are considered people at the time. So um, I think that accounts for part of what you're talking about in your example. Um, And for me, thinking about intellectual property um, required thinking about who has access, who is given uh, the validity and uh, the credibility and imbued with the capacity of humanness to the extent that they can create knowledge, right? Create something that's valuable. Um, And that is, that's sort of an entree into how I think about citizenship um, and its intersections with race. And I think we can do that analysis in a domestic and a global context. One of the things that that came to mind, you know, all sorts of things start <laughs> start sparking here, but one of the things that came to mind as you're talking about, um, you know, that, that, uh, that, that decision, that kind of cultural convention about what has value and who has value um, is the way that, physical labor gets defined as rote work, but that's actually the hardest stuff to train a non-human to do, right? Like uh, a computer can beat a person at chess if it doesn't have to pick up and move the pieces, right? If all it has to do is decide where it should go, where the pieces should go, a computer can beat a human at chess. But if it has to like pick up a piece with the, you know, with the pincer grip and like move it to someplace else and set it down and not knock the other pieces over, like it can't do that. It can't tie its shoes, right? It can't. And, and so, so like what, what is cognitively challenging, right? What, what kind of information processing is going on? Um, and then there are so many examples, like Sharam used the example of the, the retail and the intellectual property of the clothing design, um, but it's in so many products, right? Certainly like the the assembly of, well, the, the design and then the assembly and then the branding and retailing of all of our electronic devices, right, has that same pattern. Um, even a lot of our food has that pattern, right? Somebody has the information rights in the genetic code of the breed of whatever, right? And then somebody's actually doing the labor in the field and then it gets branded and packaged in the supermarket, right? And where do those, what, where does the value of that final product get captured? So 
because of because of where we are, whose podcast this is, and I'm I'm interested in trying to uh, trying to make some connections between what you're what you're doing here and some of the the Marxist categories of analysis that a lot of us are familiar with um, and and work with and and find um, sort of useful, but then always in need of rethinking and and readaptation. Um, so. I've been trained, Sharam has been trained, right? We've been trained to think about capitalist accumulation and about primitive accumulation. In Capital, Marx writes primarily about capital accumulation, right? Capital's class and property regime is established. Those who control capital manage to directly appropriate or otherwise get shares of the value that labor is producing, and then they augment their capital that way. So we get this, this process of capital accumulation um, as an ongoing process. It's been established, and then it kind of runs itself. He does also more briefly uh, talk about primitive accumulation, and he gives it as an origin story, right? He says, um, how do you create the conditions for capitalism in the first place? Well, that involves expropriation. You have to, to expropriate resources from capitalism's predecessor systems. But then um, a, a few decades later, Rosa Luxemburg says, well, no, primitive accumulation is never done. Right. Colonialism is this ongoing process of continuous expropriation, um, and capital can't ever be self-sustaining as a closed system. It always needs its ex its outside to to appropriate from. So I'm curious here about this: how this racialized process of creating and sustaining intellectual property, um, right? This regime where some people own intellectual property are recognized as knowers who can claim rewards for what they know and others are excluded. Um, I'm curious how that connects with capital accumulation, where the relations are already established and how it connects to primitive accumulation, what kind of new expropriations are happening. Um, what what can you <laughs> tell us about that? That's a great question. Um, and of course, appropriate to the audience. So I will, I will uh, give you some thoughts here. Maybe we can do some back and forth about them. Um, you know, I, I think Marx gets it right when he talks about the nature of primitive accumulation as being violent and expropriative. So that that part we can we can agree on. Um, this metaphor of raw materials comes up a lot in intellectual property literatures. I think it's a really important one for thinking about um, how intellectual property systems work. I want to pause here to just to define intellectual property, because that's not something that we have done thus far. But when I am talking about intellectual property, I'm talking about, um, generally speaking, copyright, patent and trademark uh, law. But there's related law, um, un unfair uh, competition, trade secrets, uh, rights of publicity. Those are also included. I'm going to focus on those big three for the most part. Um, and I think intellectual property scholars will tell you that copyright and patent are very closely related. I think trademark plays a role in there as well. But copyright law essentially applies to um, creative works. So when we are talking about uh, authorship of, say, music, we're talking about copyright law. When we are talking about an invention, right, who made this pharmaceutical um, or in this moment, this vaccine that half the world can't access, right, uh, that is a patent question. And then when we're talking about logos, when we're talking about branding, those are, those are trademark questions. Um, so just want to make sure that we're on the same page with respect to that. So this metaphor of raw materials comes up 
um, a lot in conversations about how people of color knowledge, particularly about science, uh, gets uh, incorporated into Euro-American information regimes. I'm using the word science here. I sh- you know, traditional medicine, I think, is included in there. Um, sometimes this involves practices of well-being, right, like yoga. Um, and sometimes it involves in the misapplication of patents. So lots of people want to talk about yoga patents, and that's not really quite right uh, in terms of how um, patents are defined. So um, what happens when, um, when Euro-American societies uh, encounter otherness? There's a history, I think, to be told here that, that Edward Said's Orientalism um, is helpful for thinking about, right? There is this desire that we see in Euro-American colonialism to organize the information that's encountered. And that sense of organizing becomes part of the colonial process. And that is part of how intellectual property um, accumulation happens. Um, So, you know, James Boyle calls this the second enclosure movement. He talks about how intellectual property um, is subject to those same types of enclosure um, that we might think of in the context of, of actual property or actual raw materials. Um, it's just intangible, right? Um, and so what I see is a co-evolution here of race, colonialism, and knowledge, that the systems of intellectual property that we have grow in ways that justify and maintain imperial relations. Um, Matthew Morrison's doing some great work right now in the context of Black American music about how intellectual property law, copyright law specifically, um, evolved coextensively with race to facilitate what we might Um, defined as a kind of primitive accumulation of Black musical production, right? And then you've referred to this already, this idea of refining the product. So that might be in fashion, it might be um, in the context of a medicine, um, but this refinement, I think, is very very culturally connected um, and very um, ideologically connected to whiteness. So whiteness then becomes this lens or practices of whiteness, right? So I don't want to reduce whiteness to just white people's skin, but the actual performative uh, practices. Um, That transformation uh, starts to happen. And that's where you get this additional accumulation of value. So let me give you one example of this um, in the context of biopiracy. And this is, um, I think, something that David Harvey's idea of accumulation by dispossession also gets at. Um, I I really like this example. This is something I'm writing about right now is the example of chinchona. So chinchona bark um, is an anti-malarial and it's an anti-malarial that contains quinine. Quinine um, was really important in the colonial project because it kept people from dying of malaria, specifically British people in India. So how does this whole colonial project in India sustain itself? Well, partly because of medicinal knowledge. So um, European knowledge about Chinchona originates with um, encounters with indigenous peoples in Peru in the 1700s. And what happens is that Italian Jesuits bring Chinchona bark to Europe. Then um, the British by you know trial and error Um, some science mixed in there, right? Some sciencing. Um, They find out that 
when people have quinine, they don't die of malaria. Um, so lo and behold, you end up with gin and tonics, right? As a sort of imperial drink that contains tonic. What does tonic contain? It contains quinine. So there's these really interesting cultural histories of encounters with otherness, the uptake of traditional knowledge, that quote unquote refinement, and then the use of that knowledge to sustain the colonial project. And we could do a similar tracing in this particular moment over hydroxychloroquine, which is also an anti-malarial that originates with this same cultural history. So that's an example, um, very, very long example that gets at some of those ideas that you were asking about. Yeah, so um, I, those are, that's a really great example. I'm glad you gave us all that detail, right? thinking about, about this whole process of, of how you know, quinine establishes this or has its, its status as, as a sort of piece of colonial knowledge. Um, what happens then, right, once something has been expropriated, right, it, it has, it, it then becomes exclusive, right? There's the right, the property right in this knowledge, right, what patents do and copyrights do uh, and trademarks do is they exclude other people from then using that knowledge. How does that then play into a kind of continued accumulation on, on the back of that ability to exclude? That's a great question. Um, I, I can give you an example of this in the context of um, patents again. So we think about the, this, the production and circulation of HIV AIDS medications. Um, what ended up happening was uh, you saw these Euro-American companies producing really expensive medications, right, that then because they had monopoly rights under patent law um, were then sold back to um, the global south at really exorbitant prices that people could not afford. Um, this is, it's such an, pharmaceuticals are um, a really rich area for thinking about the question of how accumulation happens um, because, you know, corporations also get status um, out of, or sort of cultural capital out of um, giving medicines away for free, right? So there is a sense of getting people to, to be invested in the medication and then raising the price, right? So this is a sort of classic monopoly pricing um, Amazon strategy as well, right? You start with the lower prices and then you um, go up in price. So this looks different with different drugs. Um, there's a there's a really um, often discussed case about Gleevec, uh, which is cancer medication, uh, anti-cancer medication, and how India handles the patents uh, to Gleevec in a post-TRIPS, uh, um, i.e. international intellectual property regime um, environment. We could also think about hydroxychloroquine, um, and the U.S. attempt to buy back hydroxychloroquine, which is no longer um, under patent, um, a, a patent monopoly. So during the middle of the pandemic, um, when uh, Donald Trump was convincing everyone that hydroxychloroquine was the out to the pandemic, he sort of strong-armed India into selling their entire stock to the United States, right? And there's all sorts of implications of that, but... Um, 
there is an underlying power politic that happens here or um, these um, these exchanges that are not just about economics, but they're also about um, carrot and, carrots and sticks in uh, a system of international relations. So I would add that as well. Yeah, I was uh, in, really interested in what you were saying about the, that kind of um, cultural status or the, the kind of, I guess it's a, a public relations ploy, right, of, of gifting what was sort of stolen and and made exclusive in the first place, right? And then you're in the, the position to, to present yourself as this benefactor, right, if you are in that position of, of owning this property. I, I'd like to think some more about citizenship and that that's come up um, already because this is a really central concept uh, in the in the way you organize your analysis. Um, and citizenship, the way that you write about it is not a binary variable, right? It's not you are or are not a citizen, which I guess would be the more legal way of thinking about it, right? But, um, but that it's a gradient of relations that an individual can have with the state or a degree of personhood that is culturally recognized um, that a person has. Uh, so in The Color of Creatorship, you tell this historical narrative um, based in the U.S. and you talk about how in the early U.S. Republic citizenship or non-citizenship was an explicitly racialized status, and those who were raced out of the status of citizen were also typically raced out of IP rights. Um, but then we have this more recent periods, uh, the period you refer to as the race liberal period of the um, mid to late 20th century, and then the purportedly post-racial period of uh, that brings us into the early 21st century. Um, so it seems like the process of sustaining this racial citizenship gradient has gotten more convoluted, right? We don't write it into law explicitly. It happens with language that looks race neutral on the face of it, but it masks these racially differentiated positions. Um, so I'd like to, to hear some, some more about, about that process, right? How do IP and citizenship get conjoined and replicated without explicitly naming race anymore? That's a great question. Um, you know, one of the reasons the critical race theory emerged was because uh, there seemed to be a disconnect between these um, universal rights claims that were being made um, post-emancipation and post-civil rights movement, and then the actual implementation of the laws that were supposed to carry out those um, equal rights. So Brown versus Board of Education is the quintal, quintessential example when the courts, like the Supreme Court says in Brown too, that the, that desegregation needs to be carried out with all deliberate speed, right? What is all deliberate speed? How do we do it? What does it look like? Um, it turns out that nobody has very good answers to these questions. So critical race theory emerges as a way of saying, well, we have these laws that look like they should produce um, equity, but they're not producing equity in the ways that they promised. So I think um, racial liberalism and then post-racial ideology in the, in the post-Obama years are really an attempt to say, you know, race is not the problem anymore. Right. It's that you didn't work hard enough. 
is that you didn't pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Never mind that you didn't have bootstraps, right? These are the underlying issues that race theory is trying to get at um, to push back against these claims that, you know, we're quote unquote colorblind now, right? Which is not only not true, but it's also sort of ableist to say that, right? Colorblind is a term. Uh, so um, for me, as I was thinking about the evolution of intellectual property over time, um, I, I wanted to think in terms of eras because that's a thing that critical race studies tends to do a lot to say, well, what's happening in these, in these moments uh, in history? What's, what are the pivotal uh, changes. So um, Michael Omi and Howard went on, one of, one of the arguments they make about racial formation is that there is a transition from, you know, these easy to spot forms of oppression, right? S slavery, bad. <laughs> Apartheid, bad, right? Like this is an easy, this is an easy moral issue. You're on one side or the other. And these questions get more complicated, but would say like when you're in a room uh, where somebody is making a hiring decision and they invoke some coded language about collegiality. And then you have to be like, I mean, collegiality, let's, maybe we should think a little bit about that term and what its implications are, right? And so for me, as I was reading these intellectual property cases, I was, I was um, trying to approach them with that sensibility and also um, with the idea that um, racial exclusion doesn't always look the same over time. So if you take um, if you would take a case like the one involving uh, the Washington football team, I think they've renamed themselves again, the Commanders, perhaps. Um, so, you know, they had this really racist image in their trademark and they were like, oh, this is not a, this is not, you know, that problematic for indigenous peoples. Um, that's, I think, an example of this disconnect. On the one hand, we have all these equal rights. On the other hand, you have companies saying, yeah, but it's okay if we circulate images that are degrading to groups of people because it's not that big of a deal, right? And so we know that Dan Snyder really fought for that image for a really long time under this guise of fandom. Um, and I think that gives an example of, of what it can look like in the context of intellectual property where you have equal rights, but not equality in practice or not equity in practice. So um, that's very interesting. So one of the <clears throat> themes that I feel is um, kind of uh, repeats itself again and again is that A, when uh, people's collective property is um, appropriated, right, and when they struggle to reclaim that in some way or the other, I mean, when the Native Americans, for example, or Indians and Pakistanis, uh, etc., try to reclaim their land. It's the incredulity with which with which the powers that be react to that kind of uh, uh, rec reclamation, right? Uh, so, do you feel that uh, that is also mediated uh, through uh, issues of race and uh, the intersection of race and class? And how how does that? Uh, and I would also like to bring in the perspective of gender. How do you how do you think about the intersection of these uh, three? with regards to this particular, you know, process. Yeah, so correct me if I'm off here, but what I'm hearing you ask about is enabling and disabling discourse um, that allows people of color to sort of enter into the conversation or, you know, um, 
people of a range of gender identities to enter into conversations and have equal footing to make the arguments that they want to make. Um, I think that's a tremendously difficult proposition under a system of um, patriarchy and capitalism and um, whiteness, right? Because that system automatically um, structurally casts doubt on certain types of claims. So, you know, a really good race gender example, an intersectional example, which um, I take up a couple of intersectional examples in the book, um, including about Aunt Jemima. But, you know, one of them, I think a more popularly known one is Anita Hill, right? And so when um, Clarence Thomas was being confirmed, um, there was this national conversation about sexual harassment and what constitutes sexual harassment. And, you know, when women are and are not um, credible in making certain kinds of claims. So I think this gets to what you're speaking about. You know, we have to be mindful of the fact that the systems that we operate in are constructed uh, to discount certain claims and to um, cast doubt on certain claims. Right now, I think a lot of that happens in the context of this uh, cancel culture conversation, right? Like, don't cancel people. Um, it's, you know, ungenerous. It's unfair. These poor, you know, teenage kids that didn't know what they're doing. That's sort of the undercurrent um, there. I think the opposite can happen, too, which is that there can be grants of rights that um, look like they are producing more progressive change than they are producing. So I'll give the example of um, the Asian American rock band, The Slants. And The Slants ended up in this case um, because the um, U.S. Patent and Trademark Office wouldn't register the name of their band, The Slants, because uh, they said it was offensive. Now, you know, the band members were like, I mean, we're Asian American and we did these surveys and we're pretty sure that this is a this is an example of reclamation. Uh, so this battle goes on over many years. And, and long story short, um, this gets us back to the economic conversation as well. What the Supreme Court decides is that the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office can't cancel the trademark on the basis that it's disparaging because that's a violation of the First Amendment, right? So they essentially, um, the argument I make in the book is that they weaponize free speech as a way of producing um, a libertarian ethos around racial representation. So now the market has to decide if uh, racism is or isn't okay. And I see, I see quite a few problems with letting the market decide, right? Like if we talk about histories of primitive accumulation of colonialism, uh, then letting the market decide does not strike me as the best, uh, most optimal way to get to less racism. So the, this phrase weaponizing free speech is one that I've, I've been thinking about also recently. And and I, I, I've been thinking about the way that, as, as is always the case, you can't have pure negative liberty for everybody simultaneously, right? If, if um, there are no 
kind of collectively negotiated constraints, then people who start out with the most power impose the constraints that they want. And right. And so and and in the U.S. context, what the First Amendment says is that the government can't impose constraints on speech, but it doesn't say that any private citizen or individual can't impose constraints on other people. And so so I think that free speech argument does get weaponized in this whole variety of of ways, right? Who who gets who who's in a position to impose constraints on other people's speech, right? And if you tell the more per- powerful person that they can't impose constraints on other people, they say, well, that's but those are my First Amendment rights that you're trampling on, right? You can't have the state intervene to tell me I can't use my speech rights to to crush somebody else. Um, and it, I see I. See this, I was thinking about it most recently in the workplace context, right? What can you or can't you say about governance of your workplace, right? Um, but, uh, but, but you also described it in this, uh, in this trademark context. It's like, this, this thing is everywhere. <laughs> um, um, can we actually, can we talk about methodology also? Um, Sure. In, in your piece, Bridging, uh, Bridging Race and IP, co-written with Deidre Keller, you say, um, as a side note, I'm of the opinion that questions of method are often actually racial anxieties in disguise, but that's also a conversation for another day. Um, and I'm kind of hoping that could be this uh, that other day. Um, I'm really interested in that comment there. And I encountered it in my own uh, in my own life at just the right time because it was right around the time a friend who had gotten a really nasty referee report on an article that she'd submitted to a journal um, asked me to strategize with her about what what to do, how to respond to this. And we think what was going on with that referee was exactly what you named here, um, right? That there were racial anxieties which were being expressed as your methodology is sloppy. Um, so, and I also, I'd just like to observe for our listeners who haven't read that piece yet, that Bridging Race and IP is in its form a challenge to the norms and boundaries of serious scholarly writing because it's presented in the form of a dialogue. It's written like a like a transcript of a conversation, um, which is also cool. But um, yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear more about that, that connection between racial anxiety and methodological critiques. I so appreciate this question. Thank you for asking it. Um, yeah, you know, I think one of the challenges I faced in graduate school, and I'd be curious to hear whether this, whether you've got similar challenges from orthodox, uh, economic, uh, economists, economics, et cetera. But, um, sometimes people will look, would look at my work and say it has no method, right? What is your method? And I've had a lot of conversations over the years about method, what constitutes a method and, um, why can we define that as a method and what does not constitute a method? Um, interestingly enough, this piece uh, was rewritten for publication in the book that it came out in, in, a, in a more conventional form um, to fit with the other pieces. So this piece is not actually, this is on SSRN, but it is not out in the world published yet, um, which is, that's, you know, I like to introduce conversations for other days. Um, there's always something to talk about next time. But um, yeah, so I hear this critique a lot. It has no method, right? And this is also part of um, my experience of being a humanist in a world of social scientists. Um, if we think about the origins of the social sciences and the, and the critiques of them, right, so, uh, specifically 
um, by folks like W.E.B. Du Bois, we know um, that a lot of early social scientists just like skipped over accounting for the experiences and histories of people of color. This is sort of true of Marx, right? Marx doesn't have a whole lot to say about um, about people of color, at least from the epistemological position of people of color, right? Maybe about meta theories of colonialism, um, but that's a different that's a different sort of conversation. This is true about Foucault as well. Like it took an entire class problematizing Foucault and race, right? Um, and so we could go through these line of thinkers, historians, social scientists, etc., that that sort of miss race in in various ways. Um, so methodological claims, in my experience, get wielded as gatekeeping claims. They're a way of invalidating knowledge. And a lot of times that invalidation happens along the lines of you did not follow the scientific method or you did not tell us which articles you counted or you are drawing from a knowledge base that's not legible to us. Therefore, it doesn't exist. Right. And this gets to the earlier question that Sharam asked about. Um, whose claims are get heard, are enabled and disabled in public spaces. Well, part of the way they're enabled and disabled is through the invalidation of the way of knowing of the epistemic foundations of the claims that are being made. And so I think methodological objections can be stand-ins for um, epistemological objections. I don't want to recognize your vantage point as um, true. Therefore, I will make this claim about methodology, right? This gets back to the collegiality comment that I, I made, right? Methodology can be a coded language for talking about um, racial anxiety. And I, I use the word anxiety here because I think a lot of times those objections are founded in... Um, a fundamental definitional fragility of whiteness. So when Richard Dyer writes about whiteness, he writes about whiteness as constantly under threat, right? Like definitionally, whiteness defines itself as this invisible construct that's constantly under threat by there's some sort of, you know, pollution or cancellation or whatever. It, there is a constant narrative of threat. And so I identify that as kind of racial anxiety, um, that manifests in methodological claims. Now, I'm not saying that is that methodological claims are always that, but um, sometimes, possibly even often, um, you will find that methodological claims are not as simple as, oh, you didn't follow this method, right? Because we have to ask questions about like, why that method? What's good about that method? What do you know about the method I'm using? You know, why don't you like genealogies as a method or um, autoethnography or whatever the case may be, right? Um, and this intersects with a question that has come up in my, in my discipline in, in rhetoric quite a bit of rigor. What constitutes rigor, right? Um, that's a question that gets at the fundamental definition of the meritocracy, um, which, of course, is a, is a target of critical race theorists. So, you know, on the one hand, I, I do want to flag this racial anxiety that I think underpins a lot of methodological objections. I also want to um, highlight that this is, I think, a collaborative work in progress for progressive scholars to say, well, what's the alternative, right? How do we think about these questions differently? Um, what's our stand-in for um, methodological objections, right? What, what are the questions we need to be asking instead 
of these sorts of methodological questions that maybe have um, racial origins or racial anxieties woven into them. Yeah, and it, I was sort of thinking as you were talking about methodology as this gatekeeper, right? If your methodology makes the things, or if, if the gatekeeper's methodology makes the things that you want to say unsayable, then that's a pretty effective gate right? for, for making sure that it doesn't get said. Absolutely. And, and, you know, different methodologies allow us to ask different questions, um, and if we don't allow for a variety of methodologies, then we just, as you suggest, exclude a bunch of questions that are that are relevant ones, right? But you can imagine a world in which you're you're tracing colonial encounters with otherness, and you have um, European explorers that you know account encounter people. Um, that they have never encountered before and say, oh, we don't understand what's happening, therefore we're going to dismiss it, right? And I think this is just a more um, refined, I will use the word refined again, version of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What is also interesting, Anjali, is the, is, the, is the hierarchy that exists, seemingly. I mean, when you, for example, talked about whiteness, it always seems to me that, um, you know, Whiteness is something that everyone else uh, kind of, it's the touchstone with which everyone else needs to be measured, right, in a sense. Um, the, the, it's, it's like the absolute from a Hegelian kind of a standpoint, and everyone else is a relative uh, with which, you know, we have to kind of accord with the, the principles of whiteness. And the, 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 you know, and this, this kind of um, has, has implications for what is and what cannot be considered an appropriate methodology right as well because um for example i mean in economics this is this is really really irritating right so for example i mean uh, abhijit Banerjee and dufflo receive a nobel prize in economics basically just for um uh, you know uh, random controlled trials right so it's more of a commitment to a method rather than a set of questions you know um, so, so how does that, uh, you know, uh, in, in your view, connect with, uh, you know, issues of property rights, etc. on the one hand, academic work on the other? So it, do you see that there's a meta-theoretical uh, claim that we could make here? Yes. Can I just leave it at yes? Um, so I think the first maybe entree into this question is to think about how we're trained in graduate school and what it means to be quote unquote, trained in graduate school. I'll give you the analog of law school. When I went to law school, um, I took this property class, first year property class. And we one of the first cases we covered, which is pretty standard, uh, is Johnson versus McIntosh. And Johnson versus McIntosh, um, without getting too much into the weeds of the facts, is a, is a case that establishes um, what's called the doctrine of discovery. So uh, what that means is if the government, the U.S. government... Um, claim something for itself that used to belong to indigenous indigenous peoples, then it now belongs to the U.S. government because they have property law and um, indigenous peoples are obviously a backwards people that do not have that, right? So I'm sitting there in my first year property class and sort of looking around and I'm like, are we, we going to talk about how this is super racist and problematic? And 
the answer to that was no, right? Because what is law school about? Law school is about learning what's called the black letter law. We can think about, I'm sure we can all think about analogs in an economics class in graduate school or in a you know social science methods class. Um, we're only, I think, now getting to the point where Gen Xers and millennials are aging into positions of power where they can say, oh yeah, we're gonna spend a couple of days talking about what it means uh, that people arrived in this country and planted flags and were like, this is mine now, right? Um, but that's not a conversation that used to happen. So, you know, I think um, when we talk about whiteness as an organizing structure, um, when we talk about, you know, when Foucault is talking about power in the context of education of rep replicatory processes, um, I think we have to remember that um, there's race and class and gender reproduction happening in education as well. So graduate school is really training us to do a certain kind of race, uh, gender, class performance that is exclusionary to a lot of forms of knowing. Um, law school does that as well. And I think part of the project of decolonization of the self is about starting to come to terms with what those particular ways of knowing look like and how to sort of extricate them from our, our disciplinary practices and also replace them with maybe more transformative ways of knowing, right? If we think about the, the new um, literatures coming out about transformative justice. Um, so that's what I would say in terms of the omnipresence of whiteness as a, as a structuring ideal within academia. And I think the example you give is a great one for, for thinking about that, right? The substitution of method for, um, for content to some extent. That sounds like an inspiring place to, to wrap up right? <laughs> to, with this call to think about transformational knowledges. Um, so unless there are other things you wish we'd asked you that you want to, that you want to add. No, I think that's great. This was such a great conversation. Um, I, I wish uh, people could see some of the comments in the chat box as well. There's some, there is some banter here about um, hate speech and data colonialism and um, what it means to be a to be a real economist or a real rhetorician or a real lawyer, right? That idea of authenticity and realness is one uh, that comes up a lot. And when I when I talk about transformative justice, that's that's an idea I like to think about. So maybe that's that's a good stopping point to say. Um, we should probably stop accusing people of not being real enough in the disciplines that they participate in and open ourselves up to, to different ways of knowing um, is part of the decolonial project. Great. Thank you so much. Um, it's been great having this time to talk about this. Um, and there we have it. <laughs> <laughs>